This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for July 13th, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, news writer Daniel Clary talks with us about a high-energy neutrino detected by the Ice Cube facility in Antarctica and its potential source, which was confirmed by other observations. And Susan McCooch is here to talk about her paper on what makes deep water rice grow so tall when it's submerged in water. How does it know it's underwater? And how does it know how tall to get? First up, we have staff writer Daniel Clary. He's here to take us to the Ice Cube neutrino detector in Antarctica, where this past September, researchers detected a neutrino that originated in deep space. Hi, Daniel. Hi. So Ice Cube is actually made of ice. How How is it used to detect neutrinos? Well, neutrinos are really, really hard to detect because they don't interact with normal matter hardly at all. You know, they're tiny subatomic particles, very, very light, and they travel at nearly the speed of light, and they just zip through things without noticing. There are something like a trillion of them passing through every person every day. Hmm. So you have them flying through you all the time. And they just can pass through the Earth, and most of them wouldn't even notice. But very, very occasionally, one of them will hit, you know, a proton or a neutron in, a, in an atomic nucleus. And then there's a shower of debris. And when that happens, it emits light, because these uh, this debris has to decelerate from this really high speed. And so it sheds lots of light, and you can detect that light. And that's how you see a neutrino. You need a very large amount of material, transparent material, in the hope that one of these collisions will happen. And so Ice Cube is a cubic kilometer of ice underneath the South Pole. So they they just sort of drilled down holes into the ice with hot water and then lowered light detectors into those holes in something like 86 different places and then uh, just left them there looking at the ice. And that was, you know, eight years ago and it's been scanning for neutrinos ever since. And it has caught one that has some very interesting history, we think. The key here was to try to tell where it came from. You know, we don't want local neutrinos, right? We want deep 
space neutrinos. So what was the key to finding out that it was from, you know, another place? This was the goal of building IceCube. It was meant to be a telescope for neutrinos. So we know that neutrinos are produced in nuclear reactions. So we can see the ones that come from nuclear reactors and from the sun. And mm -hmm. uh, in 1987, we detected some from the supernova that went off not too far away in that year. And that was the first time people had detected any from beyond our solar system. So they knew they should be able to get some from more distant sources. And that's really valuable because they're created in very violent situations, which astronomers are always interested in. And, but they go in such a straight line because they're not deflected by magnetic or electric fields. They're not scattered by anything. They just come here straight from where they're created. So if we could detect them, that would have important information about where they were created. IceCube detects lots of neutrinos because there are some created in the atmosphere and by the sun, but they're looking for the really high energy ones that have come from deep space. And they do it by looking for the track of this debris as it flies through the ice. And then they can reconstruct the track that the neutrino would have followed if it had continued. And then they can look back along that track to a point on the sky where they think the neutrino came from. And they've done this many times and never seen anything that was an obvious source. But last September, they found one that did. How did they then zero in on what they think is the source? Well, they had to get help from other observatories. So when they find one that is interesting, that's high energy, and they get a good track from it, they send out an alert that goes to astronomers all around the world. And, you know, if they're interested in following it up, they can turn their telescopes and take a look. In this case, a few telescopes did have a look and didn't see anything. But then the Fermi Gamma Ray Observatory, which is an orbiting telescope put up by NASA, they took a look up there and they knew there was a thing called a blazar up there, which is a really bright source of high energy radiation. They knew that a while ago it had started flaring up, it got more active, and they took a look and it was still active. And so it was very close to the point in the sky that this neutrino was possibly coming from, only half a degree away. And so they made the connection and suddenly lots of other telescopes got interested and they were able to <laughs> observe it at all different sorts of wavelengths, you know, radio, optical. Right. And everyone was looking at this blazar and learned a lot about it. So what what exactly is a blazar besides a bright, high energy source of some things? Well, it's uh, a blazar produces its energy from a supermassive black hole. So this is a black hole that sits at the center of a galaxy. Uh, like the one in our galaxy. But uh, the difference is that in these very active galaxies, the black hole's eating lots of material. So it's consuming dust and gas. As it's falling in, it gets heated to a huge temperature and shines in very brightly, all this material that's falling in. There are many galaxies known as quasars, which uh, are like that. They've got a black hole, which is in a feeding frenzy and so producing lots of uh, radiation. A blazar is different because some of the energy is being funneled into jets that come out of the poles of the quasar. And if that jet just happens to be pointing straight at us, 
we see this really bright source of radiation coming our way because we're in the line of sight of that jet. What that jet is sending our way, one of the things is neutrino. So what is being able to sense or detect a neutrino coming from a blazar? What What's the importance of that? Well, it'll teach us something about blazars and what's happening in the jets. You know, um, physicists are very interested in how these jets form and mm-hmm. what it is that's flying out in the jet. Um, they suspect that there are particles, you know, protons and nuclei of small atoms that are being, you know, fired out by the magnetic field of the black hole in this jet. And some of those particles could form cosmic rays, which are another phenomenon that is bombarding Earth all the time. So these are particles that hit the uh, hit the atmosphere of the Earth every so often and, again, produce a shower of particles. And, you know, very, very occasionally, there's a really, really high energy, one of these cosmic rays hits the atmosphere, and astronomers have no idea where they come from and how they could have this colossal energy. They're about a million times more powerful than the particles produced in particle accelerators like CERN's Large Hadron Collider. They're another mystery. But what astronomers think is happening is that if these particles are being fired out of the jet from a blazar, some of them are colliding with other atoms surrounding the blazar and producing neutrinos. So in the same place where these cosmic rays are being created, neutrinos are created as well. So if you find the source of neutrinos, that's pointing you to the source of the cosmic rays as well. Or that's the theory. Or can get a handle on cosmic rays somehow. Yes, that's right. Very cool. So one other thing that I wanted to mention from the study that we're talking about here is that to back up this this finding, they went back through their archives, their old data, to see if any neutrinos had come out of this blazer before and, and just happened to have written a signature on the ice. What did they find when they did that? They had a search back because Ice Cube has been operating for eight years and uh, no more than that, nine years, I think. So they had a lot of tracks that, you know, they hadn't known their significance. So they were just mm-hmm. sitting in the archive. So now that they knew a direction that they were interested in, they looked back and they found a period of... Um, six months from 2014 to 2015, where there was an an excess of neutrinos coming from that point in the sky. So they think that possibly that blazar was flaring up at that time and uh, again producing excess neutrinos that we captured. If that proves to be true, those neutrinos can be added to uh, what we know about this blazar and maybe we can learn something about the neutrinos and the cosmic rays. So this is support because, I mean, basically this is a single observation that they're using to say this is neutrino from that blazar. Is there more that they can do to confirm that? Absolutely. I mean, they can look for more uh, neutrinos and now they know the direction they're coming in. They can keep particularly alert for things coming from that direction. But also other observatories can also keep looking. Mm-hmm. You know, they... Uh, Gamma ray observatories are watching it and have made some detections. Uh, you know, they can keep looking for more X-rays and, um, well, you know, all right across the spectrum from right. uh, from there to get to radio waves. So, <laughs> you know, the more they learn about this blazar and everything that's coming out of it, 
the more we'll get to understand about these objects as sources of high energy particles. This really, for me, has echoes of what happened with LIGO, a multi-messenger finding where you, you find one signal and then you follow it up with other observations. Absolutely. You know, that's what uh, everyone is saying, that it's just another great example of how, you know, by combining all this data from different sources, you learn much more than if a single one had made these observations. And in a way... This is more of a multi-messenger detection than even LIGO was. You know, the LIGO people knew they'd seen gravitational waves, but IceCube didn't know it had seen anything interesting until Fermi had said that, uh, hey, we've seen something up there too. And then suddenly, because they had these two things, they knew they had something interesting and then everybody else joined in. So they had half the story yeah. and it wasn't just confirmation. It was the other half of the story. Yeah, that was that's right. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Well, thank you, Daniel Clary, so much for coming on the show. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Daniel Clary is a staff writer for Science. You can find links to his story and the Blazar Research Papers at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for an interview with Susan McCooch about the secret to Rice's ability to keep its head above water. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Life Proof Backpacks. Whatever the action, wherever the destination, no matter the weather, LifeProof Backpacks keep you optimized, organized, prepared, and protected. Check them out at lifeproof.com slash science mag and receive 15% off any pack. LifeProof Backpacks are made with water-repellent Cordura fabric to shed rain during rainy summer afternoons. Special tech pockets are sealed against the elements and lined with soft fabric so phones and other devices stay safe inside. Select backpacks also have an ingenious side-access laptop pocket, ideal for when you're going through airport security. And speaking of security, most life-proof backpacks are equipped with a super-secret stash pocket for when you need to hide away a passport or some cash. And they're all outfitted with front tie-downs to hold oversized stuff on the outside of your bag. With four sizes, there's a life-proof backpack for any outing. Grab the Keto 18 liter for day trips, up your carrying capacity with the Squamish 20 liter, go with the Goa 22 liter for tons of pockets, or max out on space with the Squamish XL 32 liter. Get your LifeProof backpack now at a 15% discount by going to lifeproof.com slash science mag. LifeProof backpacks, carry on. killed a lot of houseplants by overwatering them. But some plants, like rice, are adapted to periodic flooding and can live in over 10 feet of water. Susan McCooch and colleagues write about the signaling pathway that underlies deep water rice's reactions to high waters. Welcome, Susan. Thank you. Nice to be here. So what happens when the water comes? How does, how does rice respond to suddenly finding itself submerged we have to start out by just reminding people that rice evolved as an aquatic plant. So it's very used to living in watery environments. But floods are obviously too much water, right? And rice has evolved two different strategies. 
It has a response to flash floods where it's only submerged for a short period of time by basically holding its breath and stopping its growth so it can survive the flood for up to two weeks. And the other response is that it basically escapes by outgrowing the flood. Why is it bad for a plant to be submerged in water? What can't it do? So most plants actually cannot survive much flooding at all because they can't get oxygen. Mm -hmm. And so they need to keep their growing tips above the water. The roots need oxygen as well as the shoots. But rice is very special because it can take oxygen from the shoot and transport it down into the root. So that's why rice can grow in a flooded paddy, which is an anaerobic soil. There's no oxygen freely available in that soil because it can transport it down to the roots. Wow. What kind of places do people grow deep water rice? So today it's mostly grown in Asia. It evolved in South and Southeast Asia, and there are over 100 million people who depend on it for sustenance. It's grown on about 35,000 square miles or 90,000 square kilometers of land. And the countries where it's found in countries like Bangladesh, Burma, Myanmar, we call it today, Thailand, Vietnam, and Cambodia, it can account for up to 25% of the land used to grow rice during this rainy season. Let's talk a little bit about what your research is about. What were you looking for with this paper? I mean, it was known that rice decides to grow real tall when it, some kinds of rice grow real tall when they're submerged in water. What, what part of that were you looking at? In either case, whether rice is going to hold its breath, so to speak, and withstand submergence by not growing, or whether it's going to grow rapidly to outgrow rising floodwaters, in both cases, it was known that ethylene gas is the trigger that rice is responding to, to do one of those two responses. Mm -hmm. But it was not known how that related to the hormone response, which it was already known was controlled by gibberellic acid. And so what we were investigating was the mechanism by which the accumulation of ethylene causes the gibberellic response of rapid growth, rapid what we call internode elongation to keep that rice rising with rising waters, but never rising if the waters are not rising. Getting back to the sensing question, how does the rice know it's underwater? That's the really interesting thing. So normally plants that are growing in the air are emitting ethylene in the form of a gas and it dissipates very readily in air. But when a plant is submerged, the ethylene moves very slowly in water and mm -hmm. that leads to a buildup of ethylene around the plant. And that increase in concentration of ethylene in water is sensed by the plant via what we call the ethylene signaling pathway. And that's what we were investigating, is exactly how the plant senses the buildup of ethylene gas because the water doesn't allow it to dissipate quickly, and then how that leads to the response, the appropriate response, and it's a very quantitative response. How are you able to pick apart this pathway and find out what molecules were important for this process? Well, the first thing we did was just basic genetics. We used genome-wide association and we used biparental QTL mapping. And we found a major signal on chromosome one that mapped down to, fine mapped down to about a 5KB region, mm -hmm. which targeted what we call the semi-dwarf one gene. But what's so curious about that gene is that that gene has long been known as the green revolution gene. And we refer to it as the semi-dwarf gene. And yet in this case, that same gene was co-opted for a very different function. So it's a completely different allele that causes rapid elongation in the case of deep water rice. But in the case of the very high yielding green revolution rices, 
it caused the rice plant to maintain a very dwarfed stature during its vegetative growth period. So it's, it has both functions. So was it selected for in the Green Revolution? How did it become a prominent gene in that situation? It was the target of selection. It was the primary target of selection. And primarily because it led, it allowed the plants to produce a very large amount of grain with much smaller investments of energy in leaf and stem. Mm. So that caused higher yields in the land. And it also led to a, just a basic ratio shift in how that plant allocated resources. And it sounds like it's doing something similar here, but it's saying we need to grow very, very, very tall in order to to get the rice out. Right. So when the ethylene builds up in water, the plant senses that increase in concentrations of ethylene, and that allows it to then transcribe a tra- what we call a transcription factor, which is known as an ethylene insensitive gene that then binds to the promoter of what we call this semi-dwarf one gene. And it is that transcription factor that determines how much of the gibberellic, this hormone that either causes rapid elongation or dwarfism. Mm -hmm. And that's the trigger. That's the thing that determines when, where, and how much of that hormone is produced. But what I think is most exciting in terms of this paper is that we've unraveled or we're starting to unravel a very complex mechanism by which the plant not only responds to its environment, but it knows how much to respond. So it's truly in tune with that environment. And if the floods don't come, the rice doesn't bother to elongate. Hmm. One thing you also looked at in this paper was where these alleles came from, right? Where the origin of this ability uh, was globally. What did you find out about that? Once we had clarified what was the haplotype, as we call it, what was the particular allele at the SD1 gene and its promoter that was identifiable in these deep water rices and that differed from the non-deep water rices, we were able to ask, in which populations of wild ancestors do we find that allele? But the exciting thing was that we found that allele in populations of wild rice that were endemic throughout much of Southeast Asia, but almost all clustered around the Bangladeshi Delta region. And so we found that the origin existed in the wild stands and was presumably the target of selection for these very special deep water rices that are very beautifully adapted to these flooding, deep flooded areas, which flood, by the way, every single wet season they flood. If you don't mind, I'd just like to make a a connection to what's in the news today, because people, many people around the world will have heard about the Thai soccer boys, the 12 boys and their coach who've been trapped in that cave in Thailand. And that is partly because these same floods are occurring during the rainy season. And it's that area of Thailand where the rice paddies typically flood, and it's these same rains, and they come at the same time of year every year. And that is the shift in ecosystem, and it dramatically changes the entire river delta, the entire northern part of Thailand, and the rice paddies and the people whose livelihoods depend on them during this season of the year plant these deep water rices. I I think another point we should talk about is, you know, what this variability in rice gets us. So the idea that you are able to consult wild rice and and look for the alleles there and the fact that there are all these different kinds of rice all all over the world, it means that we, you know, there's some flexibility in this crop. Yeah, there's an amazing potential, I think, as we face the rigors and the, the extreme fluctuations in climate these days 
to look at the wild ancestors of our cultivated crops and really take a lesson from how they have learned, if you will, to respond to their environment. They inhabit all kinds of unusual and sometimes extreme environments. And rice is a pretty good example of that, not just in terms of water, but in terms of cold and heat Mm -hmm. and salt and drought and many other forms of stress. And the wild ancestors can show us a lot. So for a rice breeder looking for climate resilience, one of the ways in which I think we can learn from uh, from nature is to look very carefully at the way that the wild ancestors and the populations that exist with less rather than more human care are able to respond to environment and take some lessons about how we might then modify our varieties through selection or any other form of genetics to adjust and adapt them to the needs of uh, of the future climate. Okay. So what are, what's next for your group? Are you going to continue to study this particular process in deep water rice? So actually, we want to just mention our large number of Japanese collaborators. And um, this is a large team of people who've been looking at the questions of rice, both in, in its semi-dwarf and in its elongating and in its ability to survive underwater And we will continue to look at all these extreme forms of adaptation to climate. And we find it extremely illuminating. And I I will say it's, it's also quite humbling to take a look at what, what nature can do if you give it a little bit of time. And if the genetic variation is there, if the variety, if the genetic diversity is there to begin with, uh, selection, both natural selection and human selection can do amazing things. Susan McCooch, thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks, Sarah. It was wonderful to have this chance to talk to you. Susan McCooch is a professor of plant breeding and genetics, plant biology, biological statistics, and computational biology at Cornell University. You can find a link to her research at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, many other places, or listen to us on the science site. On the site, you can also find links to the research and news stories discussed in the episode. That's sciencemag.org slash podcasts. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.